very sweet and appropriate words for us to sing tonight. Good for us to reflect upon that. I invite you to take your Bible and open to Revelation, singular, one revelation that John received. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Tonight we'll be looking at verses 15 through 19 as we continue in our journey through the final book given, the capstone of Scripture. In light of what we've sung, great is God's faithfulness. In light of opening up God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help tonight in our study. Great God of highest heaven, we come to you tonight. Our hearts already filled as we have heard one another sing and proclaim that indeed great is your faithfulness. We look all around us, we look at our own lives, we confess tonight we often are unfaithful and faithless, but we remember that when we are faithless, you are faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We thank you for your ongoing care and love for us in our Christian life. We thank you that while we are pilgrims, you will keep us secure on our path towards the celestial city. We look now to you as we open up your holy word, asking that you would help us. We admit the challenge in studying through a book like Revelation, a book unique, a genre that's different from much of the rest of scripture. Be our guide and teacher tonight. We ask that, that you would then receive all honor, glory, and praise. You are worthy of that. We look to you now anticipating your help. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. <clears throat> Tonight we come to Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. If you're taking notes tonight, you can entitle our study, Sound the Trumpet. Sound the Trumpet. It was on May 29th of 1953 at approximately 11.30 a.m. that two individuals made it to a place no one else had been before. What am I speaking of? Who am I speaking of? Of course, Sir Edmund Hillary in Tenzing, Norgay, the two, the very first humans to make to the very top of Mount Everest. Yes. In all, it took him about seven weeks total to make the climb all the way up and then to make the descent down all safely. Amazing to think that they were able to do that you think of all the advances since then in technology and ability, and yet, for the most part, they made their way up, they made their way back, they established what is really the main route to head up to the top of Mount Everest, 
I don't know if you've ever done any study on this or read about it or watched a documentary. There are a few. In fact, there was one in IMAX. Do do you know IMAX? You know, the really, really big screen? Really interesting when you look at it, different than what might come to mind. If you were to pony up the large amount of money that you would need to then travel and make your way up to Everest, several things are involved in it. Most important of which is just you are going up to such heights that in order to do it safely, you have to allow time for your body to acclimate to such a high altitude. You would first head to a place called base camp. Base camp is approximately 17,600 feet above sea level. A few different ways that you can get up there. It seems a popular route would be to fly to a town known as Kathmandu. From there to fly to another very tiny town. And then with a guide and some others with you to then begin a trek that would take you all the way up to base camp. And already 17,000 feet That's high. You make it up there. In total, several days, maybe a couple of weeks, needed to spend in base camp just again to allow the body to acclimate. When finally it's time to begin the process, again, you can't just immediately then travel up to the very top of Everest. Several steps are involved. You first have to make your way to what is known as Camp One. Again, and I'm speaking of the the southern route, the route from Nepal that takes you up to the top of Everest. Uh, To get to Camp One, you're going from 17,600 feet all the way up to 19,900 feet. And of course, the treachery is in order to get from base camp to Camp One, you have to cross something known as the Kumbu Icefall. Think uh, a, a massive ice formation that, depending upon the time of day, and though it's still cold, if it heats up just enough, all that ice fixture can begin to shift and it can become quite dangerous. Uh, in order to cross it, you've probably seen the images. They have the established ropes, and they'll take long metal ladders that they lay flat that you then holding onto the ropes slowly, one step at a time, walking horizontally across the ladder, all the while looking down to what could be a very treacherous fall deep into a crevice. You cross that ice fall, you finally get up to camp one. Then for many, you actually have to then return back to base camp. And just that initial trip up to camp one, it's allowing the body to acclimate. But then you return to base camp. Then, given some time, you then cross again that ice fall, make your way up to camp one, then make your way up to camp two, now up to 21,300 feet. 
Another treachery enters in between Camp 1 and Camp 2. Uh, Camp 2, there's this area known as the Western Coombe, a glacial valley where this unique area, no wind, and you're that high up, and if you're in the middle of the day with very direct sunlight, and again, because of the elevation, even more intense uh, uh, sunlight, uh, ultraviolet rays, you name it, can actually become very hot for those hiking make their way up to camp two. Again, then for many, they have to travel back to camp one, travel back to base camp, to then go from base camp to camp one to camp two, then up to camp three, 24,500 feet. And again, depending upon the group, depending upon the guides, maybe have to go back to one of the prior camps to then go back to Camp 3, to then go up to Camp 4, we're now at 26,000 feet in an area uh, properly entitled the Death Zone. Or now, if you've made it up to Camp 4, you're in a very narrow window where finally it's going to be the time to then make the effort to try to get to the peak, the summit of Everest. Usually, it seems, uh, they get up to Camp 4, they spend a very brief time up here, and then maybe at around 10 at night, 11 at night, when it's still dark, they begin the trek all the way up to the summit. And if they're able to get through, again, a few more very challenging elements in the hike, they get up to the Everest summit, 29,000 feet, taking in a breathtaking view, spending maybe 30 minutes to a maximum of one hour to then have to make their way back down lest it become too windy, too cold, too dangerous. In all, depending upon the group, depending upon the fitness of the individuals, it could take as many as four days to go from base camp all the way up to the summit, for others even longer. And again, you're thinking, why all that effort? And why, do, why the need to uh, acclimatize or uh, prepare the body? Well, if you ascend up too high, you get to the high altitude, less oxygen. Less oxygen begins to affect the body. Suddenly, you can have a quicker uh, heart rate that can become very dangerous. There could be the possibility of heart attack, a possibility of stroke. If you're all the way up at the death zone, 26,000 feet from there higher, uh, they tell us apparently cells in the body are just beginning to die. In other words, you're not wanting to spend a long time up there. Because of the low oxygen, and you've probably seen, of course, they bring with them supplemental oxygen, but even then, still not enough oxygen or the higher up you go, you're getting close to the summit, the effect of all of that, uh, there begins to be a poor mental judgment, slower body movements. Again, it's taking such a toll on the person. There can be something known as snow blindness, of course, because of the cold weather, if there's any uh, exposed skin, frostbite. And the great danger, if you ascend too quickly with that high altitude and that low oxygen. 
two things can happen. One known as H-E-P-E, the other known as H-A-C-E, high altitude pulmonary edema or high altitude cerebral edema. Basically swelling, the brain can begin to swell because it's so oxygen starved. And you've probably seen it's that dangerous that Many have died in their attempt to try to get to the top of Everest. Again, in my study, in my reading, in my preparation, someone said uh, to try to get up there, it's like running on a treadmill as you're breathing through a straw. That's the challenge that it has on the body. Now, you're sitting here this Wednesday evening, and you're thinking, thank you for that interesting science lesson, anatomy lesson, geography lesson, what does that have to do with Revelation chapter 11? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's a parallel. Here's the parallel. In the course of our study in Revelation, we move forward, we advance in the events But then you notice there have been these periods where there's a pause, an interlude, to kind of slow down, catch our breath, recapture what's going on. When the interlude is over, then elements in the account continue to unfold, the chronology advances, and then another interlude, another pause. Walking our way through Revelation is similar to the way that you would make your way up Everest. We can't just march all the way through it quickly, but rather, beginning at base camp, we take a few steps forward, grasp what's going on, we take then a few steps back, we have these interludes, we pause, we catch our breath, to then resume the journey, make our way up to a higher camp, to then go back, catch our breath, uh, acclimatize our mind to what's going on in Revelation. Well, tonight we reach a good point where uh, we've been in base camp, we've gone up to camp one, we've gone up to camp two, we've made our way back to base camp, but if anything, now we're making our way from base camp to camp one to camp two to camp three, With our eyes looking ahead, soon we're going to be making it to Camp 4, and then finally the summit of Revelation. In many words, I think you then can grasp the point that we're at in this study. And even for our sakes, as we begin to move forward, it helps us to pause, to catch our breath, to look back where we've been so that then it's clear in our mind where it is that we're going as we march forward. So we come to Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. As I said, sound the trumpet. Our focus tonight is going to be now on that seventh trumpet that's sounded. But if there's a seventh trumpet that's sounded, certainly that means, well, there's been six prior And if you remember in the study, before there's any of these seven trumpets, there's seven seals. 
So maybe for our sakes, to catch our breath and to prepare to move forward, let's recapture briefly where we've been so far in Revelation. Again, when you open up chapter 1, John has this vision. He's on the Isle of Patmos. Suddenly, he sees the risen Christ. And at the end of chapter 1, John is instructed, record what it is that you've just seen. Chapter 1. Record the things that are taking place in the present. That's chapters 2 and 3. Again, the letters that go to the seven churches. And then how John is told, then I want you to record the things that will take place after these things. In other words, John, you're going to be seeing things happening in the future you are to record as best as you can what it is that you see in this vision. That element begins in Revelation chapter 4. You remember this. And before he even jumps into the details of what's going on on the earth in the future, John begins first seeing what's going to happen in heaven. Revelation 4, Revelation 5. Revelation chapter 4, John sees and beholds the throne, the one that God himself sits upon, and all the figures around it, these angelic creatures, uh, the 24 elders representing Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, all there praising. Then in chapter uh, 5, what's introduced in chapter 5 is this Uh, scroll that's sealed, the title deed to the earth, that John looks, he begins to weep. Why? Do you remember? No one is worthy to open it. No creature, sinful human or even sinless angelic creature is worthy to open this scroll. So John begins to weep. Is there any hope? Is evil going to win and have the final say? And he's told in chapter 5, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. John hears this and then he looks and he sees what looked like a lamb that was slain. None other than our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, this perfect mediator, God's Son, whom he sent forth to finish this mission to save his people. The Lamb then takes the scroll. The Lamb then is worthy to break the seal. And as that first seal is broken, we're introduced to seven seals total. We move into Revelation chapter 6. Each one of these seals representing, again, looking ahead into the future, what's recorded now hasn't happened yet on this earth. In fact, you read the rest of the Bible, we're looking ahead to this unique period, seven years total, the 70th week from the book of Daniel, known as the tribulation, and the final portion of it known as the great tribulation, that in this period, As the seals are opened, 
God is going to begin to pour out his judgment upon those on the earth. Great judgment. There's false peace. There's worldwide war. There's famine. There's death. The martyrs cry out. There's cosmic disturbances. We come to then chapter 7, the first interlude. Again, a little bit of a respite in the midst of these seals. Where John looks and he sees this group of 144,000. All comprised of individuals from the 12 tribes of Israel. What is it that John is seeing? Simply that in the future, in this period, God keeping his word from promises made in the Old Testament, will gather together the nation of Israel, the nation as a whole, though for so long she has rejected Christ, the one true Messiah, then at this time, being humbled by these judgments, she will finally turn, behold her Messiah, and come to be saved. A great revival. Not only that, John then sees in heaven this massive multitude that can't be numbered, signifying all those who have been redeemed. You then move into chapter 8 and 9. Again, we're trying to catch our breath. Where is it that we've been? We're preparing to move forward. The seventh seal is opened, but think of, you know, Russian dolls. You open one up and what's inside? Another one that's smaller. You open another, what's inside? Another one that's smaller. Think of these judgments in that way. You have the seal judgments, but now with the seventh seal, what's opened up? Seven more judgments, the trumpet judgments. And these trumpet judgments recorded in chapter 8 and 9, again, signifying God's judgment on the earth. It will humble Israel. It will punish unbelievers. It's meant to be an instrument where these individuals would come and turn to God to be saved. Oh, intense judgment is poured out. I mean, you've, you've seen some of the disaster films thinking of all what would happen if the the, uh, polar ice caps melted or if Yellowstone, the volcano beneath, were to erupt. I mean, intense things, right? How much more in these trumpet judgments? One-third of Earth's vegetation destroyed. One-third of the seas and the creatures within destroyed. Fresh waters struck. Celestial heavenly bodies struck. Then, with the fifth and the sixth, uh, Satan is allowed to unleash demons upon the earth. These creepy figures, the, the locusts released from the pit. And the angels from the Euphrates, the intense judgment that comes. We then move into chapter 10 and into chapter 11. Another breather, another interlude. 
we pause, we look around, we begin to acclimate to what's happening. That's where John looks and he sees the mighty angel. And I think I spoke maybe not as clearly in my enunciation, not that it was a giant bean, if you remember that, but a giant angel with a tiny book that John takes, he eats. It's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Why sweet? God will win. Christ will reign, but bitter? Many people are going to be judged. Just and yet tragic. As these then are completed, and again, last time Kevin did an excellent job that there still will be people that God has preserved and saved. And God will even send forth these two witnesses in this period of the tribulation, prophets like of old, preaching God's truth. But then finally we come now to the seventh trumpet. Maybe looking ahead to what's going to come soon. You have the seventh trumpet. It's here sounded. But again, contained within it, there will be seven more judgments. Bowl judgments. We're going to begin to see those looking ahead into chapter 15 and 16. But if that's in 15 and 16 and we're at the end of 11, what happens in verses 12 or chapters 12 through 14? Well, similar to in film, you might have something portrayed from the perspective of one individual, only then to see something told from another individual's perspective. Chapters 12 through 14, it's as if the camera is going to shift and pan to Satan and view things with the tribulation and all of cosmic history from his perspective. And that helps us just make sense of why does it seem like things might jump back and forward? Simply looking at it from another perspective. Now friends, that was 30 minutes of an introduction. If I was in my seminary class, I know I would be dinged. But all that's necessary. Otherwise, we don't know what's going on here. We come now to the seventh trumpet, verses 15 through 19. Tonight, the outline is simple. Three words that unpack the seventh trumpet. Three words that unpack the seventh trumpet. And what we'll do is this. As we give each word, we'll read the verses accompanying each outline point tonight. Okay? First word, verses 15 through 17, if you're taking notes, it's this, coronation. Coronation. A kingly element. Built into it, this idea of ruling and reigning. Let's read verses 15 through 17. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign 
forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Coronation. The seventh trumpet sounds. Again, this is the last of the trumpet judgments, but we're not to confuse it with another last trumpet that you read about in 1 Corinthians 15. If you were to look over in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, there we hear of the last trumpet. But there's a difference between that and the trumpet here, simply that in 1 Corinthians 15, the last trumpet there, it's speaking of something that is instantaneous, something that happens, as it says, in the twinkling of an eye. The blessing accompanied with what's known as the rapture. Here, though, this trumpet, it's describing what's going to take place over a period of time, not something instantaneous. And primarily, though there's blessing, it's also speaking of judgment upon those who are ungodly. So again, not to confuse the two and just lump them all together, there is a difference. This is the last of the seventh uh, of the seven trumpets. And again, just like with the seventh seal, it's opened, but what takes place, the judgment that is poured out, uh, it's spoken of here, but you're going to see it fully on display when we get to chapter 15. So we look at verse 15. The seventh angel sounds. This trumpet is being blown. And it says there are loud voices in heaven. It doesn't specify who. Maybe it's the angelic creatures. Certainly I would think it includes those who are redeemed. They all are up in heaven. You can lump in the martyrs waiting for God to finally act. How long, O oh Lord? Well, now the trumpet sounds. Now in heaven, loud voices begin to say what it is that's going to happen on the earth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And there's excitement here. Soon they're going to finally see it fulfilled and displayed. This coronation that Christ, the true king, he will at last have his earthly kingdom. The kingdom that presently, it says, is the kingdom of the world. And I want you to notice, as you look at verse 15, when it says the kingdom of the world... It does so very deliberately singular. What is that telling us? Well, think, friends. You got all the nations, all the people groups, all the ethnicities, all the leaders. But in an ultimate sense, in a cosmic sense, there's really right now on this earth 
one kingdom with one ruler. A ruler who usurped this kingdom, who tempted and sought control of it. This figure we read throughout the Bible, given the name Satan. That he, this one figure, ultimately behind all the kingdoms of the world, so that it's singular, just the kingdom of the world. In the world as a unit, a single concrete kingdom. Again, friend, thinking cosmically, thinking big picture in the Bible, what originally was given to man. Adam tasked, rule, subdue the planet. You are placed beneath me. You were made in my image. Adam is my vice regent. You are to lead. You are to rule. You are to govern this earth. And what did Adam do? He turned his back on God. He sins deliberately and defiantly. And that kingdom, usurped by Satan, presently he is the one in control of it, over it. And you remember the language used in the Bible? That this figure, Satan, Ephesians 2.2, he's the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he is the God of this world. Or think back to the Gospel of John. We've heard it recently three times from Jesus' own mouth. The ruler of this world. Again, Can I pause and say, what a cruel ruler he is. And how sad and tragic that people on this earth believe that they are free. Believe that they are independent and finally can have it their way. All the while they are slaves to sin, controlled and influenced by this harsh, wicked ruler. It's right then for those in heaven to begin to celebrate that now that kingdom of this world will be taken back, will be given to the rightful owner, the true ruler. And again, not just ruling in heaven, but actually coming to this earth and ruling on this earth. In the way that that first Adam failed, this second last Adam, the true and better Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will return and he will establish his kingdom that often in the Bible it's referred to as the throne of David. It takes us back to Second Samuel chapter 7 where God makes a covenant with David. And God says to David, David, I will raise up one of your descendants who will rule and he will reign and his kingdom will be forever. 
And from that point on, several times in the Bible, references made to the throne of David. And if we're being specific, and if we're tying it with what's taking place, it is a real throne on this earth that Jesus one day will sit upon as he reigns. Again, we'll see it later in Revelation. It's the his reign during the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. That then, as that's completed, will then be merged as heaven and earth come together and it will then become this eternal heavenly kingdom. And you know, it's right for us to just stop for a moment and think what it was that it cost the Son to then rightfully receive this kingdom. Again, think back to Luke chapter 4. Do you remember in the, the temptation narrative? That as this second last Adam comes onto the scene, again, the tie there at the end of Luke 3 with the genealogy going all the way back to Adam. Satan himself comes to tempt Jesus. Jesus has to obey. He must succeed. And Satan himself, one of those temptations, he offers him, I'll give you the kingdom. You can have the crown. But what would be the problem if he were to listen and take that and accept it and listen to that temptation? There would be a crown, but there wouldn't be a cross. And this Savior, before he can have this crown and kingdom, must first accept and submit to the cross. Good news for us. It means we have a sufficient Savior. And since he submitted himself to the cross and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and he's been resurrected and he's ascended into heaven, now then awaiting his great return where he then will have the crown. So what's said here, the excitement, the coronation, finally the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord speaking of God the Father, and of his Christ, speaking of God the Son, and he will reign forever and ever. And again, they're speaking with such certainty, uh, looking ahead to what's about to take place, but speaking as if it's so sure and settled. No one's going to kick him off this throne. And you know, we could take time to walk through many Old Testament passages that speak to what this kingdom will be like on the earth and all those on the earth who will stream to it. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 2, Daniel 2 verse 44, Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14, Daniel 7 verse 27, Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, Zechariah 14, verse 9. It's even announced when Gabriel speaks to Mary in Luke 1, verse 33 through, uh, 31 through 33. 
even, again, sometimes we read this account and we laugh thinking, what are they thinking? Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven, but before he does that, those around him, his disciples, they say to him, they're asking him, it says, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? As if they're waiting to see Israel restored in the kingdom that Christ then will rule in. Their anticipation is right. The timing, though, was wrong. Not with the first coming. It's with the second coming. It's the coronation. You could even say celebration. Because verse 16 and 17, those in heaven begin to fall down on their face, worshiping God. It says, giving thanks to the Lord. Because he is the almighty. He is the one who are and who were. And he is the one who has taken your great power and have begun to reign. The proper object of worship. The one in the position of authority. The one with the power of authority. The one even with the self-sufficiency to rule and to reign. Oh, the joy, the excitement, looking ahead to what is to come. But that takes us now to our second word. With the seventh trumpet being sounded, there's coronation, but there's also going to be confrontation. Verse 18. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. What's the confrontation? Well, there will be blessing. There's going to be reward. But primarily with this trumpet being sounded, and again, you think contained within will be these bold judgments that we're going to see soon in Revelation. That as that's about to be unleashed, again, the amazement that there will be people on this earth still banding together defiantly against God, enraged and angry, wanting to overthrow God from being the ruler. Can I teach you all a lesson tonight about sin? And again, this is appropriate for even the children. It's something that we say in our household. Sin is stupid. Sin is stupid. I mean, when you really get to the heart of it, it's not making sense. It's illogical. 
good young children to learn that soon. Following the path of sin, that's not going to lead you to happiness. That's going to lead to what is sad and hard and painful. And if only those would learn this lesson, and yet sin is stupid, the nations were enraged. They still band together, and they think, we're going to see it later in Revelation, they're going to band together, they're going to march out to this valley, this battle site known as Armageddon. And they think that they are going to fight and be victorious against the risen Christ? I mean, what? How foolish is this? And yet sin is stupid. And these individuals, I mean, you think with these judgments taking place on the earth, what should humble them, what should bring them to the point, I've sinned against this God. Clearly this God is powerful. I need to come to him on his terms and ask for mercy. And yet they don't. They band together. It's just like what we read in Psalm 2. The kings of this earth have taken their stand. They've gathered themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. All these signs, all these plagues, all these judgments, and yet they're hardened. Does that remind you of a figure from the Old Testament? Remember Pharaoh? Ten plagues. Each plague very specific. A mighty display of God's power. But each plague tied to, in that Egyptian culture, what they believed was a god. And with each plague, the one true God is toppling over all of their supposed gods. And you would think that Pharaoh, seeing this, would be humbled and would say, okay, Moses, let those Israelites go. But instead you read these horrifying statements that Pharaoh hardened his heart And not even that. You do find statements that say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God gave Pharaoh what he wanted. And in the same way, in the far future, there will be those on this earth filled with rage. I mean, this is, the term here is intense. This is deep-seated fuming anger. I mean, you've seen some of the videos of the mobs that get together and the chaos and the destruction that they cause. All the more elevate the intensity as it's directed against God. And yet God will act. 
in this confrontation, God will pour forth his wrath. Your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Again, we're going to be introduced in chapters 12 through 14 to some of these key figures that will set themselves against the one true God and will lead those on the earth in rebellion against God. But they will be destroyed. God's wrath will be poured out. Again, we read this, and not to just let this be a textbook lesson, this ought to alarm us, and this ought ourselves to make us pause. Am I being hardened to the Lord and to his word? Or is the ministry of God's word and the ministry of God's power, is that rightly humbling me? Now, a few things here are even lumped together in the confrontation. It says, the dead will be judged. Who is this referring to? Hard to determine. It doesn't appear that this is the unrighteous dead because they're not yet raised. That's going to happen after the millennial kingdom. It doesn't appear that this is referring to what we'll read of in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. That's something that only unbelievers will face as they're going to be judged and punished according to their sinful deeds. Seems like maybe lumping all of it together, a general reference even to all of these future judgments, speaking of them as if it's just one ultimate event. And yet, the kindness of God that even in the midst of this, he will single out his people and for their faithfulness, he will reward them. Rewarding, it says, your bond servants, the prophets. Again, not just speaking of people alive, but even people there in heaven. God's servants, the prophets. Uh, speaking of Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets, Maybe even speaking of the two witnesses that were just on the earth. All those from the position of speaking God's truth, they're going to be rewarded. And not only that, it says the saints who are further described as those who fear your name. And I love this, the small and the great the strong Christians, and even the weak and mature Christians. None are left out. All will be rewarded. All will receive God's blessing, even as they soon enter into that kingdom. You know, as that's pointed out, it's helpful for us to stop and think there are these places in Scripture where God himself is the one who speaks of rewards for faithfulness as if that reward is a legitimate motivation for seeking and serving him. Not that in an ultimate sense, that's why we're faithful to God. In an ultimate sense, our, our heartbeat is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
And yet along the way, there are these statements that even accompanying that grand motivation, there are these rewards that God will give out and that should motivate us to seek him, to serve him, to persevere in living for him. Coronation, confrontation, third and finally, communion, verse 19. In the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Amidst the coronation, amidst the confrontation, John sees this incredible sight that there in heaven, the temple of God is opened. And it says the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. What is it that's going on here? This last word, this last image of what John sees as the seventh trumpet is sounded, it is the promise of communion. Communion, not in the sense of this last Sunday, the Lord's table, but rather the sense of fellowship, closeness and intimacy, unbroken fellowship with God. Again, what's, what's the imagery here? He sees the temple in heaven. The true temple, which the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple was a mere shadow and picture of. The temple then, it's the very place where God's presence dwells. Certainly the place where God's throne is that we read back in chapter 4. And as he looks and he gazes upon this, it says that it's now opened. And not only that, the ark of his covenant appears. Again, we read that. We have to then go back to the Old Testament. What's the imagery? The imagery of the tabernacle, the imagery of the temple, the imagery of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember what it was for? That as God in the book of Exodus made this way for a sinful people to be close to a holy God, that he gave them instructions to build this tent, the tabernacle. That there within this tent, God's presence would come and dwell. Something that was forfeited back in the garden. That God is making a way for sinful people to again draw close to him. But in order for that to happen, because they're sinful... Several steps have to be involved. There's got to be sacrifices. There's got to be cleansing. And even then, the instructions to build this Ark of the Covenant, this rectangular box covered with gold with two cherubim on top, 
symbolizing God's throne, symbolizing God's presence. And even within that ark, they're to put Aaron's rod that blossomed. A container filled with the manna that God provided. And as well, the copy, the stone tablets with God's law written upon it. So that there, at this Ark of the Covenant, again, do you remember its location in the tabernacle? Was it out open in the available for anybody in Israel to stroll up and to take a picture at? No. You had the courtyard. That within the courtyard was the tabernacle. And if you were a priest privileged to enter into that tabernacle, would then you see the Ark of the Covenant? No. Not in the holy place. There would be a few other uh, uh, furniture within, but not there. No, only as you made your way into the very holy of holies, the most holy place. Something that only the high priest could do. One day a year, Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, that in that mysterious and majestic ceremony, he alone would make his way in. No chair is in the Holy of Holies because he can't dwell long in this place. And he would approach that Ark of the Covenant and there the sacrifice, the blood would be offered on the top symbolizing the forgiveness that God provides and the atonement that is made as sin is satisfied and atoned for. And why is all of this taking place? That that sinful people can dwell close in fellowship with a holy God. But oh, because of Christ and what all those sacrifices pointed toward, he offers his great once for all sacrifice. That veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Now there's access to God. But not only that, looking ahead in this scene, it says the temple is opened. The ark appears as if soon coming down upon this earth. There will now be this intimate, close, physical communion with this God. Of course, because it's with this God who is holy. There are flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, an earthquake, a great hailstorm, reminding us even of the scene at the top of Sinai when God's presence was manifested there and the nation is at the base of the mountain, 
They can't ascend to the summit. But when God comes down, oh, the sights, the sounds, the images. There will be this coronation. How tragic that there will be confrontation. And yet for God's true followers, there will be this communion which looking ahead, Revelation 21, even as all these things will take place and finally the ultimate judgment takes place and then at last that millennial kingdom changes into an eternal kingdom and the earth and the heavens become the new earth and the new heavens. Oh, we're going to hear it soon in Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. We long for that day. It will come soon. But a few things still have to take place. Even as we prepare to make our way further in Revelation, we we got to uh, acclimate to what's going on. And we've done that. The seventh trumpet sounded. And while this is still yet coming in the far future, we do well to remember the words from Second Peter chapter 3. In light of these future things, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This study is not just speculative, friends. This study is to give us hope of what's going to happen, certainty of what awaits us, to fuel us now in the present, to be his faithful witnesses. Next time we jump back in, the camera's going to shift. We're going to see things from, we'll put it this way, a satanic perspective. But we'll have to wait to get to that. As we close tonight, can I simply look out and say, we're speaking of things in the far future. But what is that if you now in the present don't know this God savingly? You've read and heard tonight of how he will treat unbelievers who reject him. It's settled, it's sure. Tonight then is your opportunity to not go that path, but rather to go the path of humility. The path that looks up to this God and says, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that you can be my savior. To simply pray the prayer of the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, the sinner.
you pray that in your heart, God will hear that prayer. And our hope is that you then will begin and join with these other pilgrims as we journey on towards this celestial heavenly city. Father, we thank you for our study tonight. Oh, we long to see the day when Christ will reign. And even with the majestic words that we can belt out like a choir, and he shall reign forever and ever. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.